They didn't talk about environmental issues. They didn't talk about labor issues. They didn't talk about social justice issues. They talked about job creation and public safety. And so I think from the business community, public safety, infrastructure, economic development, those are things that we care about. And and the council has now shifted. A few years ago, it shifted, I would say, markedly to the left. And by the left, I mean, we elected folks who didn't have business experience, business background, or any sympathy for the business community. They didn't understand where government should stay out of the way when it comes to economic development, economic vitality. And I think we now have shifted back to more of a centrist city council that will recognize that and will hopefully spend its time trying to avoid adopting policies and ordinances and regulations that make it harder to grow in San Antonio. The June 10th runoff election has produced two new members of the San Antonio City Council, Silk Kaur in District 1 and Marina Alderete Gavito in District 7. Kaur and Alderete Gavito join Mark White as the newest members of the San Antonio City Council. Mark White won his election on May 6th to represent District 10, succeeding Clayton Perry, who chose not to run again. Kaur defeated incumbent Councilman Mario Bravo 59% to 41%, and Alderete Gavito defeated Dan Rossiter 62% to 38%. Today, we will be focusing on how these two candidates won, how Kaur, Alderete Gavito, and White will change the political dynamic and direction of the council, and what lies ahead. There's a lot to unpack here, and we have a great panel to help decipher what happened, why it happened, and what it means. Joining me to offer insight and analysis are Rob Killen, an attorney with Killen, Griffin, and Fairmont, where his practice focuses on land use, economic development, and special districts. Aaron Bly, the senior director at the Kaufman Group, a government affairs and land use law firm. Aaron specializes in advising clients on city-county funding and contracts, nonprofit advocacy, and energy issues. And Daniel Ortiz, the president of Ortiz McKnight PLLC, a land use law firm based in San Antonio. Ortiz McKnight primarily focuses on land development, entitlements, economic development incentives, and creating special districts for property owners and developers. First of all, Rob, Aaron, Daniel, thank all of you for joining the discussion today. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we get into the individual races, I want to ask for your overall observations. Did the elections go as you expected them to go? Rob, we'll start with you. You you texted me election night saying no surprises. So, Eddie, you're right. Yeah, no surprises. Uh, exactly as expected. You could see on uh, at the general election, that election night, the way things were going and the runoffs ended up turning out about what you would expect or at least what we expected. Daniel? I would agree. I, no surprises in terms of where the momentum was and, and the, uh, the turnout and the results, I think, uh, matched that momentum. And Aaron, I mean, you've been involved in these races for a long time. Based on what happened May 6th, uh, did the runoff surprise you at all? No, not a bit. You know, we thought maybe District 1 would actually be a little bit closer than it was, but it just shows you that they were ready for some change, I think, in District 1. And District 7 was no surprise at all because Marina has been the front runner during the entire race. So we're going to come back to District 7. I guess let's let's dive into District 1 Mario came in second place on May the 6th uh, on the the original election. He was down by eight points. I think it was 34% for Sukkur and 26 for Mario. So he sort of came into the runoff. Um, A, for an incumbent to come in second place is difficult. Um, However, we've seen uh, Ron Nuremberg came in second place in the mayoral election to Ivy Taylor, but he came back and beat her. So it was not necessarily out of the question for Mario to be able to pull this off. But he came in second place on May 6th. He came in with a disadvantage, I guess I would say some baggage. Rob, how big of an issue was his berating of his uh, former councilwoman, Ana Sandoval, and his uh, succeeding censure by his colleagues? Uh, Eddie, thanks for the question. I think that the the censure, the his actions with Anna, probably depressed his numbers. I think it probably also made it hard with him running against a woman in the runoff. Uh, clearly, and took away any opportunity if he wanted to go negative against Sook. 
So I, I think it had some impact both, both from a strategy standpoint and from a turnout perspective. And I think you see that in his numbers. Uh, I looked at his numbers in his runoff two years ago with Roberto Trevino. Uh, he ended up with 4,040 votes in the runoff. And this time around in the runoff, he only ended up with 3,615 votes. So uh, his numbers came down from his runoff uh, two years ago. So can we go back and start at the beginning where when he beat Roberto Trevino, it wasn't, would you, would you agree with the statement that it wasn't necessarily 100% Mario vote? that some of it was protest vote against Councilman Trevino. Councilman Trevino had opened up a homeless shelter on Vance Jackson at his field office. You know, the uh, Delview neighborhood right next door came out uh, adamantly opposed, uh, as did other folks in his district as well, some other things that he'd done. But I would say opening that up uh, right before Election Day hurt him, and a lot of people were voting for Mario uh, as, as because they didn't want Trevino. Aaron. Yeah. And Councilman Trevino was also the face of the Alamo plan. And I think he, you know, wanted to be the one to solve all those issues. But in the end, it kind of backfired on him when it came to election time. I think that was a, another reason that he lost to Mario Bravo. Daniel. I think the the uh, incident at City Hall that resulted in the vote of no confidence was certainly a significant factor, but it wasn't his only factor. So coming in the way he won against uh, then Councilman Trevino, uh, he had a number of issues to overcome. The way I kind of, taking a step back and looking at it, think of it was he gave uh, the voters permission to vote for almost anybody else. There, You could be upset about a number of issues or a single issue. Uh, and one of the things that I think uh, dovetails with that that uh, jumped out at me was fundraising. Uh, not always, but almost always in San Antonio, whoever raises the most money wins. And in the runoff, I think it was very telling that the incumbent Mario raised 51,000 and Sook, the challenger, raised 61,000. I think that is something uh, to look into uh, in terms of the issues that Mario was facing. It wasn't one single thing. I don't think the vote of no confidence was the only issue, but it was certainly an important issue. But he had a number of issues he was trying to overcome. Well, and I also think a lot of people were kind of waiting to see what was going to happen and who was going to get in the runoff with Bravo. So once everyone knew it was Sook, they you know, got behind her as the candidate, you know, really not wanting Bravo to win. So, uh, Daniel, to your point, at the outset, on May 6th, 74% of the people voted for a candidate other than Mario. And so that was one of Sook's rallying cries that 74% of the people in District 1 wanted some form of change. I think that's right. And and even once you get into the runoff, um, and I think Rob hinted at this already, but um, Mario's numbers from the May 6th general to the June 10th runoff decrease. He actually loses not a ton of votes, but some votes versus Sook actually increases her votes by three or 400 votes. Um, so um, I think that's something uh, to take note of as well. And um, l- let's talk about her for a minute because we've, we've talked about some of the baggage that Mario had. She's a newcomer. Um, she hasn't lived, uh, she wasn't born and raised here. She wasn't really that well known, but yet she found an opportunity. She saw Lane and she developed a very strong campaign. One of the things that, um, uh, what a lot of people have told me that they admire about her is that she listens. She spends more time listening. And so she heard a lot of people on the campaign You know, I wondered about how much of an impact the not voting for the two budgets in a row, not not uh, staking out a position on Prop A might hurt Mario. But in a conversation I had with uh, Sook after the election, she told me that was more inside baseball. But the, the issues that were coming up at the door when she was block walking was Mario's not responding to constituents um, in a timely fashion. Uh, The anger and frustration from the construction on St. Mary's and Broadway and the censure, uh, which then Mario admitted um, he felt like was a big issue for his loss. Again, I kind of used this phrase already, but I feel like his actions 
gave voters permission to vote for someone else. He didn't keep his base solid. They were upset for one reason or another, and she was hearing them at the door and just pounced. Um, I think it's also very interesting to add to that, that in the May uh, 6th general, um, she was in support of Proposition A, which failed miserably, yet she got voters to go out and cast one vote against Prop A and a vote for her despite taking that position. I think that is also something to take into consideration um, in terms of how she campaigned and what Mario was or wasn't doing. Yeah. And I do think maybe there was a way that Mario could have handled it differently. I'm sure for reflecting back, which he'll be doing a lot of, but you know, addressing those issues more publicly. I think what what happened with Sandoval and the other things and giving a better explanation, I feel like people never really got his sense of of what really occurred and like a real apology. So I feel like that ultimately hurt him for sure. And I do agree with the Prop A, you know, Sook was the only one for Prop A, but she clearly stated it was only the abortion piece of it that she was in support of. And then she did kind of backtrack when she realized in front of the groups and some of the D1 neighborhoods that that was an issue, but she did have a good explanation for it in the end, I felt like. Rob, anything to add? Yes, I thought it was interesting that you were talking about the top two, but if you look at the top four, the others were uh, Jeremy Roberts and Ernest Salinas, who are both adamantly opposed to Prop A. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the numbers and the runoff, their supporters don't seem to have come out. Sook's numbers stayed the same and, and grew, and Mario's numbers dropped. So Ernest came out and supported Mario, and Jeremy came out and supported Sook, but I don't think their supporters actually came in and made a difference. Totally so agree. So it's kind of interesting yeah. comparing that to where everybody stood on Proposition A with Mario taking no position and Sook being in, in favor. So one of the things that I noticed that Mario was talking a lot about was the support he had from neighborhood association leaders, and I think he even put out a direct mail piece and... Um, and, and I assume that's outreach that Sook now needs to do to those folks. I agree. I think the interesting that you bring this up, because I think one of the common complaints you hear from folks who live in neighborhoods is that the leadership of the neighborhood doesn't necessarily reflect the rank and file homeowner in that neighborhood. So the fact that the, the folks that interacted most directly with the council person on a regular basis decided to support him while they're asking for infrastructure, fixing sidewalks, fixing their streets, not surprising. The question is, what do the people inside the neighbors actually think? And so I think Sook recognizes that, and I think she'll immediately start reaching out to them. Aaron, you know, when Sook came on the scene and announced she was running, it was interesting that she had the support of people like former councilman and current state rep Diego Bernal, but she also had people like developers, a developer, Marty Winder, and that seemed to represent a broad spectrum. And then from that point forward, uh, she began to build on that and bring in a lot more people. Do you think that uh, uh, having that those few business people, Nelson Wolf had also joined mm -hmm. early. Uh, do you think that made a difference in her gaining support? I, I think it did, especially for a newcomer coming in, a political newcomer. No one knew her name. No one knew how to say her name. <laughs> no, <laughs> no one knew a lot about her. And so I think as people met her one on one, especially they lined up in support. And then, you know, once you get in a room with her or see her in front of a crowd of people, you get it because she's very personable. She's got a lot of poise for her age. She you know, can really work a crowd. And so I think that she, you know, as she was meeting with people in the industry and business community, they were willingly and happily supporting her. We'll move on to District 7 here, but the the comparison I'm going to make, she's very smart. Very smart. N uh, not only book smart, but I think she's very uh, politically astute and savvy as well. But there still, she still has a humbleness about her when she speaks and she's the type of person that if she doesn't know the answer to something, she'll say, I don't know, but I want to learn. I'd love to hear your perspective. And I'm going to kind of connect her to Dan Rossiter. Dan is also in District 7, uh, very smart, but sometimes he comes across as not so humble. And I, I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but sometimes... There, there were times uh, the, the way he holds himself, the way he answers questions, um, that it may have uh, come across not so humble. Rob, you you were at the North Chamber event, 
with the, uh, I guess the multiple chambers got together at that event. And um, how do you think he came off to the crowd there? I, I believe Dan's a, a smart guy. I actually serve uh, full disclosure on a Samco committee with Dan, smart guy, Southwest Research, uh, brings a lot to the table in terms of intellect. I think uh, what hurt Dan, uh, it's not being smart. It is being relatively young, being relatively new to the political process and not recognizing that he needed to connect with a variety of uh, potential voters. I'd like to go back to to your point about Sook, and then we'll come back to Dan here in a second. But I think, yeah, those names, uh, Judge Wolf, Marty Wender, instantly legitimize somebody. Um, They'll make you return a phone call that you might not otherwise have returned. Um, But once you sit down with her and talk to her, I agree, she's she's able to articulate her positions and why she takes certain positions that might not overall seem like they complement each other. She can articulate those things and you walk away realizing, okay, there's some thought there into that. Uh, and it doesn't take very long, you know, 30 minute conversation that, that says a lot. I do think I agree with that. She uh, will admit when she doesn't know her story about uh, sort of wanting to step into being a developer, buying a building, trying to rehabilitate it, and then deciding that was a bit much. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pivot. <laughs> yeah, um, that says a lot. You know, not not many people can do that. Um, and then on Dan, um, I'll tell you quite frankly, I watched the debate. I I'd heard a lot about him, but I ha- hadn't actually heard him. And this uh, the debate, I think, right after the, the runoff uh, began. Yes, he was articulate and, and uh, intelligent, but I thought it just came across as very abrasive. He was challenging the, the questions that were asked of him, and I think he turned people mm-hmm. off. So, yeah, articulate but um, abrasive, not a great combination. Agree. I totally agree on all the points. And I'll say, too, I think if you look at it, though, Sook, you know, having one district one, she's she's going to have the most work and the biggest challenge because she just, you know, ousted a one-term council person and she's coming in with a host of issues, none of which have been resolved. And I think she's just going to have a lot more work from the get-go than maybe District 7 and District 10, especially figuring out her, you know, city council staff immediately and and being able to hit the ground running. And I know Mario said that he was going to analyze what went wrong. And I think he attributed the the issue with Councilwoman Sandoval and the censure as a big reason for the loss. But he also mentioned that he's not going to rule out running again. Now, I don't know if that meant running again in District 1 or if it means running for some other office. But but I think he's got he's got some work he has to do. Absolutely. OK. All right. Well, let's move on to um, District 7. So on May the 6th, Marina won two to one, 43 percent to 21 percent. Um, she started off with higher name ID, her father, Joe, all that at the, uh, once represented that district when Henry C. Snados was mayor. Uh, her mother, Chris, is also very visible in the community, uh, mo- most recently as chair of the board of Port San Antonio, born and raised in District 7. And uh, that family is deeply rooted in that Jefferson area uh, neighborhood and she was telling a story about, um, she didn't call it this, but I'm going to call it the Mija factor, uh, where, you know, a lot of the older ladies in the district kind of saw her as, you know, a daughter because they had seen her grown up. And uh, I, Mijita, you know, it's good to see you again. So as she would go block walking, she'd run into a lot of people that she had known. So, and Daniel, let me start with you because you also talked about uh, the fundraising advantage. And this is a big one compared to District 1. Absolutely. Uh, in the runoff, she raised 52000 uh, compared to Dan's $9,000. Um, that was, she had that momentum uh, going from the, uh, to the, from the May 6th election, and she definitely uh, capitalized on that and I think even added to it. And it was, it was a significant factor. There's no doubt about it. It's difficult to overcome a $52,000, roughly $52,000 fundraising advantage. So he raised 9,000, Rob, in the runoff, but in the in the May 6th election, he only raised 4,000. How do you expect to win a council race only raising $4,000? Apparently you don't. <laughs> no, I, I think there is, certainly there are lots of examples of grassroots campaigns that went on a shoestring. But in the modern age, it's generally not the way things work. You have to raise money. I think raising money 
is one, it's important to get your message out, but raising a significant amount of money legitimizes you in the sense that it demonstrates to voters that there are folks out there who are willing to put their money where their mouth is, that they, they'll take the yard sign and they will write a check. And I think that has to do with a lot of what we saw in the results from the, uh, both May 6th and June 10th. So I thought it was interesting that there were uh, a couple of forums where he actually criticized Marina for not quitting her job to run for this race. And her response was, I'm a wife, I'm a mother of two children, I have a full-time job, and I'm running a campaign, and I outraised you, you know, 12 or 15 to 1. I, I, first of all, uh, speaking of forums, I thought uh, she did an excellent job at the North Chamber uh, Forum, North Cham- Joint Chambers, the other chamber, all the chambers, goes to the forum. And she did a really good job of starting off by saying, I am pro-business. That was her very first statement is, we are open for business, and didn't back off from any endorsements, didn't back off from any of the fundraising. And I think she leaned heavily into it. But I think candidates who try to turn this into a full-time job, I think risk disconnecting with the average voter because all the rest of us get up every day. We do our full-time job. We do our community activities, whether it's PTA or, or being on a bowling league or whatever it is. And, and I think there is an inherent distrust in San Antonio, at least, of full-time politicians. Yeah, that becomes a major factor when you can multitask. Um, it's reminding me of the uh, Ginger Rogers quote, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but I did it backwards and in high heels. I mean, that was um, Marina uh, juggling mom, wife, uh, campaign manager, and still holding a job. So I think that's that's uh, critical. So, you know, one of the things that as they as they went across and a, a campaigned for this race, there was a little bit of a a market difference. And I do, Rob, I do agree with you that I think Dan is a formidable candidate. I think his fundraising hurt him, and I think uh, Daniel of uh, some of the abrasiveness um, that came through in some of those public forums also hurt him. Uh, but I'll be curious to see where he goes from here and what his level of involvement is. Yeah, and maybe he'll come back in the future. He could be a good candidate at some point. For something other than District 7? Well, Marina's Time will tell. Who knows, you know? Okay, so one of the things that I thought was interesting, Rob, you're a former chair of the North Chamber. You've chaired their Government Relations Committee. So prior to May 6th, the business community's focus seemed to be on District 2, Jalen McKee Rodriguez, and District 5 with Terry Castillo, with the two members of the council who tended to support business issues the least, and sometimes would be, in uh, depending upon the issue, maybe the most adamant against uh, a pro-business position. But yet everyone that I talk to, despite their easy re-elections, seems quite positive and feeling good about the turnout of this election. So considering Mark White, Marina, and Sook, walk me through why you think people are feeling better about this election. I think here's, I think the most interesting thing that we heard from the candidates who won is uh, in the runoffs and and Mark, so our three new council members, uh, they didn't talk about environmental issues. They didn't talk about labor issues. They didn't talk about social justice issues. They talked about job creation and public safety. And so I think for the business community, public safety, infrastructure, economic development, those are things that we care about. And and the council has now shifted. A few years ago, it shifted, I would say, markedly to the left. Uh, and, and by the left, I mean, we elected folks who didn't have business experience, business background, or any sympathy for the business community. They didn't understand where government should stay out of the way when it comes to economic development, economic vitality. And I think we now have shifted back to more of a centrist city council that will recognize that and will hopefully spend its time trying to avoid adopting policies and ordinances and regulations that make it harder to grow in San Antonio. You know, Aaron, along those lines, at that multi-chamber event, Sook, 
made a statement, if elected, I want to hang out a sign that says San Antonio's open for business. In fact, she said a neon sign. So there is, there did seem to be a marked difference on the issues that were talked about in this campaign. Yes, absolutely. Um, very refreshing, I think, to see that we have three new candidates that all generally feel the same, at least as what we know of as today, and um, very different than you know what we'd seen from districts two and five. Daniel, would you agree? I agree. I think District 10 has a history of producing uh, elected officials that are uh, business and real estate development friendly. But um, over the last few cycles, District 1 and 7, not necessarily. So it's very refreshing to hear the candidates that actually won talk openly and very in a very supporting way about basic things that, you know, Less is more, less regulation, open for business, consistency for the real estate community. It's very refreshing to hear those things because they haven't been coming for those from those districts in some time. And I also think the effect that um, it has on the overall council, the sitting council members is really good because they're feeling, you know, looking, feeling hopeful um, and excited about their, you know, their new colleagues coming in and being able to get business done in a different way. Okay, well, uh, hold that thought because... (laughs) I, one of the things that I want to talk about is um, let's talk about Mark White for a second. You know, he won May 6th and from a political dynamic, nothing seems to change. He comes from the same political cut of cloth that Clayton Perry came from. However, would would you agree that people were excited about Mark because he's a mediator and we could probably use that skill set on council? Yeah, absolutely. I think his background makes him, you know, a great council person, you know, from what we can tell. And he has a lot of relevant experience on zoning commission and, and as being a mediator. And um, I think he's just going to come in with a lot of good ideas and he, you know, he's, he's younger than Clayton Perry. So he's, you know, it's a different generation of looking at it while he will have some of the same viewpoints um, that Clayton certainly does and continue the good work. I think he's going to have a lot of fresh and new ideas. And Daniel, would you say that just from a personality standpoint, Clayton was, again, I think Mark will have many of the same opinions that Clayton, but Clayton would verbalize them. But I'm not sure how hard Clayton was working behind the scenes trying to win people over, whereas Mark has made that the bedrock of of what he wants to accomplish. I agree. Um, and I think uh, in particular, uh, representing property owners, developers, that experience on Zoning Commission is extremely valuable because you have advocates for the property owner, the developer, like myself, like Aaron, like Rob, but you also have the neighborhood associations that are maybe thinking in a completely different direction. So being able to put votes together and thread that needle, it's a skill. Um, It's a skill that you have to develop over time. And he's on day one uh, bringing it to the table. So I I do think you'll see a change in what we all talk about quietly that District 10 votes a certain way, but it's largely symbolic. You know, it's 9-2, it's 10-1, always not in the right way. I think you'll start to see a change. Maybe he does take strong positions and maybe they still don't succeed, but you'll start to see closer numbers, 7-4, 6-5, and then maybe some victories. I think he has that skill set. And I know, Rob, that um, uh, Mark White has the airport in his district and he wants to take a large role in Um, tackling the airport issues as the council meets throughout the year on the contracts that have to be awarded on the expansion effort. And interestingly, Marina Alderete-Gavito served on that mayor's task force uh, for a while. So she has a little bit of background. That may be something the two of them can work on together. Agreed. I think the airport and our new airport director, Jesus Sainz, I guess he's not new anymore. He's been there a couple of years. Uh, His efforts, folks like John Dixon, his volunteers, They've made some changes in terms of planning, but it really will take uh, strong willpower from the council to improve the airport and get everything across the finish line. I think that is one of the real uh, challenges to growing San Antonio. When I think about San Antonio and our strong background with tourism, people come, see the Alamo, see the Riverwalk, go to Fiesta, Texas, go to SeaWorld. For many people, and people come to conventions and their first impression is the San Antonio airport. And it's Which not, John Dixon called a Soviet-era architecture. <laughs> exactly. Very accurate. <laughs> it hasn't improved. And so uh, I think the way we get people coming back 
and potentially investing in San Antonio is investing in that airport experience. So I'm excited to see council members, particularly new council members who have an interest and a drive to see that happen. Coming up with the idea for this podcast was easy. I saw an opportunity to help tell stories from the intersection of business, public policy, and politics. But planning, strategizing, and executing turned out to be the hard part. And that's when I knew I needed help. So I turned to every word media. Nick Chamberlain showed me what I needed to do and by when I needed to have it done if we were going to launch on time. To be honest, I could not have launched Beyond the Bite without the help of Every Word Media. They are the ultimate podcast production partner, and they handle everything from production to promotion. So if you want to elevate your message and inspire your audience, then start your podcasting journey with Every Word Media. If you want to learn more, call Nick at Every Word Media, and you can find them at everywordmedia.com. That's everywordmedia.com, and tell them Eddie sent you. So there are two new business-based and backed groups that engaged in the runoff elections, the San Antonio Equity Alliance and Better SA. We asked Marina Alderete Gavito and Mark White and Sukur if these groups helped in their campaign and if their help made a difference. And we're going to play their responses in this order. We'll start with Marina Alderete Gavito, followed by Mark White and closing with Sukur. Yes, I was proud to earn the endorsement of both Better SA and San Antonio Equity Alliance. And I would absolutely say that they played a major part in securing this win. You know, it was great to see voters come in with their mailers. And sometimes the mailers were from me and the campaign team. And sometimes they were mailers I had not seen before from uh, Better SA or SA Equity Alliance. And so they definitely helped get the word out about me and my platform, and I'm appreciative of, of their efforts on that. During the campaign, I was honored to have the support of the Equity Alliance and Better SA. Uh, these are folks that are made up of good people. Uh, they want the best for San Antonio, and uh, having them uh, support our campaign was great for us and really helped us have a big victory on election night. I was incredibly grateful in the runoff election to receive the support from the San Antonio Equity Alliance. And I think it was really beneficial because, as many of you all know, I'm a political newcomer. And in that a type of race where you're going against an incumbent as a newcomer, it helps to have people in the community who believe in you and believe that you can be a great leader. And so their endorsement and their support made a big difference, I believe, because a lot of folks trusted their opinion. And so I'm grateful for that. A reaction to, to the, these two groups getting involved in the runoff elections, Rob? I think it's great. For many, many years in the business community, we have always hunted for the least worst candidate. And then once they, <laughs> once we've narrowed them down, we throw money at someone without any kind of plan, without any direction. Seeing the business community finally being proactive when it comes to fundraising and strategy is it's very nice. It's a breath of fresh air. Daniel, the it, it seems like the business community has moved from playing defense to playing offense. I think that's right. And that should be a signal, not just for the three newcomers, but to the entire council. They, they raised uh, or rather... Um, uh, spent significant uh, money, uh, which obviously means they raised significant money. Um, they're they're definitely trying to the business community, real estate community, want to be um, given the respect that they deserve. Yeah, and I think they this was the first election where we saw them prominently, um, you know, out there and influencing you know the campaigns in the different districts. And I think we're really going to see a differences in the twenty twenty five election having them active. Daniel, I think the three newcomers also uh, openly um, confirming that their those PACs support helped them at they and that they welcomed that support reinforces what we're talking about that the business community and the real estate community are relevant and that they're going to play a new dynamic um, from this point moving forward and a much needed dynamic at that. Rob and we can't forget the business community's support of the opposition to second release under Proposition A. All that yes. spending that happened during the general election. So the business community, not just on individual races, but on a citywide issue such as Proposition A, I think uh, put its thumb on the scale there. 
And we, in future podcast episodes, uh, John Agatha and Debbie Marino have agreed to come on a podcast episode uh, to talk about uh, the San Antonio Equity Alliance. And then Brad Carson and Adam Blanchard will be coming on to talk about the, the role that Better SA played. So we'll be hearing directly from them in, a, in the coming weeks. So now that we know what this council looks like, let's find out what these uh, three new members want to focus on. We asked each of the candidates what their top three priorities are going to be, and we'll play their responses in this order. Again, Marina Alvarete Gavito, followed by Mark White, and closing out with Sukkor. Well, I just got finished block walking all throughout District 7 and heard directly from residents what their top priorities are. Are And I would say, first and foremost, it's safety and security. And this shows up in different forms. Uh, there is a growing concern on our increased homeless population. And, you know, people do not feel safe going down the streets they used to go down. They do not feel safe going down the greenway trails that they used to frequent. The, you know, they're not feeling safe when they're seeing a homeless person through their ring camera bang on their door at two or three in the morning. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. All of us want to treat our homeless population with care and compassion. Uh, we want to connect them to the help and resources that they need. Another safety issue that we're seeing a lot of in District 7 is the increased stray dog population. During our last week of block walking, we were chased down by by dogs who got out of their fence. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's scary. I mean, this is what residents are having to go through daily. And also we need to focus in on how we report dangerous dogs and making sure that we can get our dangerous dogs off off the street and out of our community. The second biggest priority is infrastructure needs. You know, Bandera Road is a pain in a lot of District 7 residents' side. You know, I mean, if you travel down Bandera Road, often you will know that you are stopped at a light and you see it turn from red to green to red again, and you still haven't moved. And, you know, Bandera Road is a state highway. It is going to need collaboration with Leon Valley and our state elected officials on figuring out the solution for it, but we need to push it forward. Lastly, I would say that residents have expressed that they need accountability and transparency to city government and city services. And what I mean by that is residents want to know the status of projects going on in their community. And so I really want to work with the District 7 office to overly communicate to residents about the great work that's being planned and going to go on in their community. And so I'm really looking forward to, to working on that. When I think about my three priorities for the next two years, it has to start with lowering crime. Uh, we've got to get some more officers uh, on the street in this next budget. Got to do more to make people feel safe in their homes. Secondly, it's economic development. We've got to think big. There's so much room uh, for development in this city, bringing new businesses to town, helping the businesses that we have grow and provide good paying jobs for our citizens. And then number three, we've got to address the homeless issue. Um, it's widespread all over town. Uh, as far as the downtown area goes, it's causing some businesses to leave. We've got to do something to get help for these people that need it uh, and help move them off of the streets. For District 1 specifically, the top three priorities start with first, infrastructure. There are a lot of our streets in our district that need to be addressed and are influencing economic development for small businesses, but also quality of life for residents. And so the first thing I'll, I'm going to focus on is making sure that we're addressing all of our infrastructure needs, have a person solely dedicated to the work and answering all of the questions that our constituents have. Secondly, focusing on making sure that our community feels safe. We have a lot of public safety issues that are coming up at doors. We need to figure out a way to support increased street lighting and address the root causes that are causing high violent crimes and property crimes to rise. And then third, working with our small businesses to ensure we're limiting negative impact that is happening for them and also proactively creating partnerships with the community and addressing and creating resources for constituents that need access to them. And lastly, in doing all of those things, it's important that we have constant communication and that our office is always available to our constituents. 
Daniel, um, I'll start with you with reaction. So I think a couple of takeaways for me, different districts, obviously, one, seven, 10, different communities, but there was significant overlap in the priorities that they're coming into office with, which are from their constituencies. So you heard overlap in crime, homelessness, economic development, infrastructure. That to me is is something to take note of, that these issues are resonating. They're important to, to average folks all over the city. But on the flip side, I think it was also telling what you didn't hear. So we didn't hear about policies um, wading into the relationship between the employer and the employee, for example. That doesn't seem to be a priority to the average uh, person that, you know, when they were out knocking on doors and it's not going to be a, a priority for these council members as they come in. So I think both what you heard and the overlap, despite being from fairly different communities, but also what you didn't hear um, are two big takeaways. Aaron. Yeah, I would totally agree with Daniel. We also didn't hear anything about um, climate action plan, sustainability initiatives, or anything about transportation, which I think says a lot that, um, you know, the districts are aligned and focusing on these, you know, the main challenges. Homelessness and safety and crime is affecting every district throughout the city, and we don't seem to be able to find the right solutions to correct it. And Rob, I know uh, I've reached out to Chief McManus and he's agreed to come on the podcast as well because um, the, the whole public safety message is one that you're hearing all across the city in every district. I think it's great. I think we're going to have a council that actually focuses on meat and potato kind of issues and not esoteric, broad policies and responding to national trends. How do we keep San Antonio safe? And I'm glad Chief McManus will be here to address that. So there are four city council members whose name keep coming up in relationship to the 2025 uh, open race for mayor. And that's District 4 City Councilwoman Adriana Rocha Garcia, District 6 Councilwoman Melissa Cabello Haverda, District 8 Councilman Manny Palais, and more recently District 9 Councilman uh, John Courage. So we asked the new members of the council, uh, Mark White, and obviously Sook and Marina have not yet been sworn in, but we'll count them as new members of the council. So we asked them how they would hope to push their agenda and get their priorities through if four of their colleagues do, in fact, start jockeying for position as they run for mayor. And again, their answers are in the same order. Marina Alderete Gavito, followed by Mark White, and closing out with Socor. In regards to four of the council colleagues potentially making a run for mayor, uh, what I'd say to that is that on council, you can't do anything alone. You know, you're going to have to get to six votes to, to make things happen. And so uh, I would just hope that you know, they would continue in the spirit of partnership and alliance to move things forward. And... Um, We'll see how things shake out. One challenge we're going to have over the next two years is that really the 2025 mayor's race has already begun. Uh, there's at least two, maybe three or more folks on the council right now uh, that are probably considering running for mayor. If they want to do that, look, that's okay. But we really need to try and stay focused uh, on the issues that San Antonio is facing right now and try to find solutions to these problems uh, without all the extra distractions of a mayor's election. I'm really excited to work with such a veteran board of council members and the mayor who's in his last term because I truly believe we have a unique opportunity to create significant change for District 1 and for our city as a whole. And I believe the next two years we'll be able to get a lot of good work done that will improve the quality of life of residents and make San Antonio City everybody loves to be a part of and kids want to come back home to after college. Well, what I thought was interesting was uh, Sook, uh, she believes that she may be able to get more things done because the four <laughs> potential council members running for mayor are going to want to hold up accomplishments. Um, and I think Mark spoke to a little bit of that as well. You do have to worry. Mark was also saying we have We're to focus. get things done. Yeah. yeah. And so. we have to do things uh, right by the city. Um any other thoughts? I think that um, the other big question mark in regards to the mayor's race is, will our current mayor, you know, stay around to finish his two-year term? 
And by that, do you mean, I mean, it's been the, like the, the worst kept rumor in town as to whether he was going to get uh, an appointment from the, the Biden administration. Is that what you're referring to? Yes. Yes. He's been um, up in D.C. quite a few times, uh, more than other mayors in the past. And, you know, there's lots of speculation. And we certainly want to fault him if he gets some amazing offer and opportunity that he needs to leave. You know, obviously, selfishly, we'd want him to stay the full two years. But but if something changes and he doesn't, that puts a whole nother spin on what happens at city council. And then, Rob, the council rules follow that if uh, the mayor steps down for any reason, that the interim mayor is selected from within the council. We saw that with Ivy Taylor when Julian stepped down. That, that's right. And it's, it's temporary. So we saw that uh, the top two candidates at that point were uh, – uh, Ivy Taylor and Ray Lopez, uh, both would have been uh, great mayors. Ivy ultimately was selected. It was before the change to the charter, though, that mandates that if there's a period of time left on the term, that you actually go to the next uniform election date and elect someone. So we would have an interim appointment. Then we would have a special election for mayor. And so that creates a new dynamic. Who takes the interim appointment and then who runs in the special election? And I would add to that that uh, the timing, which may or may not trigger an election, is certainly an important factor. But historically, one of the policy uh, positions that the council has taken is asking whoever's going to take the seat to commit to not run for the actual permanent seat, uh, which, for example, former Mayor um, Ivy Taylor committed to that and then did a 180 and decided to run. So that... So if the people that are jockeying for that position permanently need to take uh, that issue on, it will also be interesting. And then to follow up on Aaron's point about uh, the current mayor, let's not forget about him. I think we all agree. Let's let's hopefully we can keep him for two years. But if and if he does, you'll have four people potentially jockeying for becoming the next mayor while the current mayor is trying to uh, accomplish um, potentially legacy projects or big priorities he has. I mean, it'll, it'll be interesting for these three new personalities to jump right into that. And then also, you know, there's a lot of speculation, will some other business candidate emerge for mayor and, you know, shift the dynamic of the four city council people thinking about running for mayor. So it'll be really interesting to watch and see who who else might decide to run. I had one of the four council members tell me that if this council member named two or three potential business leaders and that if they jumped in, this council member would rethink their position on whether to jump into the race. And hopefully they included your name on that list, Eddie. I was going to ask when you were going to announce, Aaron. Too many skeletons in the closet, Eddie. (laughs) So, you know, Daniel, you you talked about um, legacy project. you know, beyond the airport, we are looking at a potential CPS energy uh, rate increase. I know the budget is going to be a big issue. They want a, a budget for 100 new San Antonio police officers. What other legacy projects do you see that Ron has the potential to to work on? And do you think he's going to stay as active and engaged or does he scale back uh, while these four members of the council are jockeying for position? I guess I'll answer in reverse order. I think he stays as active and engaged as he is today and lets that jockeying happen um, as, you know, sort of simultaneously, but uh, on a parallel path. Um, In terms of legacy projects, I think we've already talked about it, um, but I think the airport's important to him. I think he'll continue to be a champion for that, and that would be great to see. Um, and then I would add, I don't know that he would consider it a legacy project today, but a discussion that's starting to get more attention in the community is the idea of one or multiple stadiums in the downtown or downtown adjacent area and pos- and possibly public referendums for funding to those. I think that's an issue that he's going to have to take a position on, and it could become a legacy project for him, whether he likes it or not. And now we have Trish DeBerry taking over as CEO of Centro, and she's going to be um, at that table having those conversations about uh, potential downtown projects, um, which should be should be interesting. Anything else that you think that you foresee the council working on beyond uh, airport, CPS, energy, downtown baseball stadium? And it doesn't preclude, you know, there's talk about 
you know, replacing the Alamo Dome or the Spurs wanting to build a facility mm-hmm. downtown. There's a lot of issues. Yeah. I think the mayor will want to show some actual results from workforce development. We've invested lots and lots of money, and we're only just now starting to see the fruits of those efforts. And the metrics aren't very good at this point. So the mayor has two years really to show some results uh, from workforce development. Another priority of his, which I think he's done a very good job of focusing on, is housing. And so to the extent that he can continue to focus on housing as he finishes up either two years or less than two years, I think there's some real opportunity there. So housing and workforce development are, I think, two items. And then finally, uh, I think on transportation, we have the advanced rapid transit running down San Pedro. I would love to see that completed in the next two years. (laughs) It won't be two years, but hopefully (laughs) planned and funded and ready to go in the next two years. And uh, what's going to happen with um, the bond package that we passed on um, Broadway um, since TxDOT um, did not allow the city to move forward with that. What, what happens to that bond money? Can it still be reused in a comparable project? Yes. From my understanding, it can be. It can go back into the general bond fund. There's actually quite a few projects that don't get their, you know, don't utilize their funding during a certain bond cycle and they go back in. And I'm not sure how they decide how those funds are appropriated, but it's a significant chunk of change. I think $41 million or around there that they did not utilize. So it'll be interesting to see. And I mean, we haven't heard anything about the Broadway corridor um, recently from the city other than it's still under construction, you know, with all the other drainage issues. So um, that could be something if the mayor decides to focus on it could really make a difference solving that issue. All right. I'm going to give you the last words. I'm going to start with Rob on closing closing thoughts on the runoff elections or the the remaining uh, time of the council uh, for the balance of the year. Uh, they're what they're going to focus on. I'm very excited by the new council. I think it I think the three new folks are going to figure out how things work very quickly. They're going to hit the ground running more so than uh, previous freshmen in office. And I think we're going to see a change in council in terms of where the priorities are, a change for the better. Daniel? I agree. I'm excited about this new council as well. I'm going to um, backtrack a little bit um, and looking at some of the raw preliminary data from the uh, runoff elections. One of the other things, in addition to who was raising the most money that jumped out at me, was that uh, women outvoted men in both runoffs. It uh, was like 54, 53 percent, 54 percent of the vote in both of the runoffs. I'm not sure if that's a trend that's already occurring. And so this is a continuation of that, or if we're going to see more of that. But I think that's something that the council uh, council folks will start to pay more and more attention to. We are now returning to a female right. dominant uh, city council. That's right. Last word, Aaron. You stole my last point. I mean, hello, six women on council. <laughs> it's like my, my favorite day ever. But I, I do think it's going to be a whole new dynamic and a new day at City Hall and a good reset in a lot of ways. And I think it's going to be very interesting to watch how they all decide to work together and build consensus and get those six votes. Um, I think probably in a better way than we've watched for the last two years. Rob Killen, Aaron Bly, uh, Daniel Ortiz, thank you all for joining us. This has been another edition of Beyond the Bite with insight and analysis from the three of you. So again, thank you for joining us. Join us for our next episode as we sit down with former San Antonio Congressman Will Hurd. This has been a production of Aldrete Strategic Partners and was produced and edited by Nick Chamberlain of Every Word Media. Until next time, we thank you for listening.